Welcome to Manufacturing Talk Radio, the only show that takes a look at the obstacles and opportunities open to small to mid-sized enterprises that manufacture here in America. Brought to you by All Metals and Forge Group, with your hosts, Tim Grady and Lou Wise. Welcome back to Manufacturing Talk Radio. I'm Tim Grady, and I'm here with my co-host, Lou Weitz. Lou, how are you today? I'm doing good. I'm doing good. How's the weather down there? Weather is sunny and warm. we got about 60 degrees in Atlanta. Are you still guys getting the uh, ice zilla, I think they called it, in the northeast? Yeah, something like that. Early this morning, but uh, unfortunately, I've been sequestered away for the last several hours and haven't been outside. So... It should, uh, it'll warm up. It'll probably by April. Yeah, that's right. Well, there's there's only two seasons in the Northeast, the winter and the 4th of July. Well, it's better than Canada, six weeks of summer and then winter. <laughs> no, we had we had some great fun last week. Sorry you weren't on the show. Uh, we had Bob DeRigo Jones on, and Bob is a guy who, is a senior fellow for the Center for America, and he does wacky warning labels. This is his 18th year talking about wacky warning labels, and I encourage anybody to go back and listen to that show on some of the really goofy stuff that manufacturers have to put on warning labels so they don't get sued. They have to anticipate what could go wrong and put it on their label. Pretty soon, if it's a small product, the label is going to be bigger than the product itself. Uh, I encourage anybody to listen to the show. Great show, a lot of fun. Um, and certainly next year, or sorry, uh, next week we'll have another great show for you today. We're going to be talking with a, uh, an economist who's a lot of fun to speak with. But before we get to that, Lou, what's going on with the West Coast port? Oh, God, I don't want to talk about it. Do I have to? Is it part of the show plan? Uh, it, it's getting worse. Uh, it's absolutely getting worse. Uh, well, naturally, yesterday they didn't work at all because it was uh, Martin Luther King Day. But um, nothing is happening. Uh, they have a, a mediator, federal mediator, um, and this one's pointing at that one, and the other one's pointing at the other one, and everyone's just throwing the, playing the blame game. And uh, I'm real concerned that this is going to be a major, major uh, uh, economic uh, setback. And I, I was just reading uh, recently that uh, of the 29 ports that are involved on the West Coast, and, you know, hold on to your seats. It represents a trillion dollars of merchandise coming in or going out of that port. And um, it's going to be terrible unless they settle this. And I'm not sure that we have the right people in the White House who have either the uh, gumption, nerve, or caring to uh, do what needs to be done, Uh, like maybe the Taft-Hartley Act. Uh, but uh, that's that's where we're at as far as I'm concerned. That's the big news, most of which uh, the population doesn't even know about. No, I would Except agree. For- only, uh, only today did ABC News pick up something on the West Coast port, and the Financial Times of London picked up something the day before that said that the Financial Times of London is expecting it to go to a strike, 
And if it goes to a strike, then we'll have to wait to see whether the president implements the Taft-Hartley Act. And if it doesn't, you're right. It could drag on for weeks or longer. And uh, it's something like $2 billion a day that's being slowed down. And if they strike, that's the loss that the economy will take. So, Well, I think we have uh, the right man uh, as our guest on the show to talk about uh, last year, this year, and what uh, this is going to do to us uh, as a country. So, uh, Tim, why don't you uh, make the intro and uh, let's get the show on the road. Yeah, and I certainly appreciate that Dr. Chris Keel has come back to join us. He's an economist and an economic analyst for the Fabricators and Manufacturers Association International, where he's helped them for the last eight years. Uh, Chris, welcome to the show again. Thanks very much. We're certainly glad to have you back on. And uh, uh, give us an idea uh, initially of how you think the fourth quarter of 2014 wrapped up. Well, it ended up pretty well. I mean, we had a pretty good year going into the fourth quarter, and we ended up in pretty good shape as well. This was maybe the the highlight before we start to see a little bit of a decline because you had a combination of some pent-up demand. You had consumers getting more active. There was a sense of having gotten kind of an ersatz raise because everybody was reacting to the lower gasoline prices. And then the various problems that we're going to start seeing in 2015 really hadn't started hitting people's consciousness. So there was maybe it's a bit of a fool's paradise that, wow, it looks great and we're going to be wonderful. And I don't think we're going to see a repeat of the first quarter of of 2014. I don't think we're going to go into a winter-provoked recession. But, you know, as pointed out, you've got the port strike issue. You've got issues around what happens when oil prices get this low. You've got concerns about when the Fed's going to raise interest rates. You have collapsing Europe. You have China sporting the lowest rate of growth it has seen in over a decade. All of those things are going to start to play out in 2015. But for the moment, it looks really good. So if you don't notice the huge clouds building behind you, it's still a sunny day. (laughs) Don't turn around. (laughs) Exactly. Just don't turn around. Uh, you know, and I was reading where uh, Europe seems to be in uh, real trouble. Um, even they're in such a state that the quantitative easing that we used in the United States may not work there. Is that correct? Yeah, it's very unlikely that it will work because the quantitative easing that we did was limited in its success here, and we did it much earlier and much more aggressively back when it really had a chance to, to do its thing. Part of the resistance of the European Central Bank is that they know full well that this isn't the panacea. I mean, all the quantitative easing amounts to is that the European Central Bank is going to buy sovereign bonds from various countries in Europe. And kind of by by dint of the crisis, they're going to be purchasing the bonds from such stalwarts as Greece and Spain and Italy. And so it's kind of like, wow, nothing like taking on real value here. It will throw some money into the economy, but not really that much. Um, one of the interesting points that was made, I think just yesterday, the economists for the IMF basically took after Europe and said, what is the matter with you? Why are you not engaging in fiscal stimulus? 
if you look at Europe as a whole and just take the euro as a currency for like a country, their mm-hmm. debt to equity ratio is only 70%. 60% is considered normal. At 70%, you have plenty of room to throw money at the economy. There is plenty of fiscal space. And you could argue that there's even space for the U.S. to do it, and we're at almost 100% of GDP. So his comment was, you know, it's kind of like preparing to fight a flood while your house is on fire. And it's like, okay, stop sandbagging for just a minute because the house is blazing behind you. True, at some point the flood might take you, but in the meantime, you're on fire. (laughs) Boy, you're a real catastrophe guy. (laughs) You know, so far I've worked in storms, fire, floods. You know, before the show is out, we'll hit volcanoes and earthquakes, I'm sure. Well, we might get on to terrorism shortly as to how how that's affecting uh, Europe and how it's going to affect us in terms of forgetting the the, the terrorist aspect, but the economic aspect of what's going on. It has a huge impact, because if you look at just what's happening in Europe right now, um, this attack has really ended up galvanizing the two sides, because Europe is furious over the attack on the satire magazine. We assumed that the Islamic leaders would be horrified by all this, and instead we're seeing massive demonstrations protesting the audacity of people in the West to engage in free speech. And it's really fueling the populists in Europe. These are the people who are antagonistic towards the austerity programs. They're also antagonistic towards immigration and and many of the social changes Europe has undergone. I mean, if you had an election today in France, the National Front would likely win. And this is a party that 20 years ago was a fringe party that nobody paid any attention to. Uh, Jean-Marie Le Pen railing on about how evil the Arabs were coming across. Right now, half of France agrees with the person who took over his party, his daughter, Marine Le Pen, who is a lot smoother than her dad but has not changed the position of the National Front. And France isn't the only one. I mean, every country in Europe is suddenly looking at anti-immigration, anti-government, very populist parties, which will have a profound impact on economic issues as well as politics. In terms of uh, things that could uh, rain down on the economy, because I know we had a particularly rosy forecast for 2015, uh, and, and terrorism aside, what are the other things that could uh, dent our fenders as we go down the 2015 highway? Well, we're kind of going to be looking at some good news, bad news, in the sense that we're dealing with yet another permutation of the oil world. I mean, we had just started to get used to being an oil producer and having some control over our destiny. Now, all of a sudden, oil prices have tanked. We're in a glut, and there's a sense of, well, what do we do if energy is not the big driver in the U.S.? The good news is that low oil prices are really beneficial to a lot of industry sectors. I mean, this is going to be good news for transportation. It's going to be good news for the automotive sector. It's going to be good news for anything that consumes fuel. It's not going to be great for those that produce it. 
one thing for the listeners to be aware of, and this is, you know, you and I, and, and we've all railed against kind of the, the missteps in the media. And one of the biggest ones has been that somehow the U.S. is responsible for the oil glut because we're suddenly producing oil. What people tend to forget is that we're not allowed as a country to ship crude out of the United States. We are not contributing to the glut. Indirectly, we are in the sense that we're now consuming more of our own oil and less of that which is produced by other countries, but we're not contributing to the amount of oil that's in the market today. The country that is blasting the the bejesus out of the oil market is Russia, and they are selling as much oil as they can possibly pump because they are broke, and they desperately need to sell that oil for anything they can get. If it was selling at 10 cents a barrel, they'd be selling it. So it's it's inaccurate to look at the United States and say, well, it's those it's those oil barons in North Dakota. No, it's the oil barons in Siberia that we can blame for the oil glut right now. What about uh, Saudi Arabia? They're not contributing that much. I mean, the Saudis are still trying to do what they have traditionally done, which is try to hold back production. They understand right now that everybody in the world is is hell-bent for leather to produce oil, so no one's paying attention to the Saudis urging oil-producing countries to cut back. But they are certainly doing what they can, as are the Gulf states, not to make it worse. So their production is down, the Gulf state production is down, but it's not able to really put a dent in, in output because the Russians are going full tilt and the Venezuelans are going full tilt and the Nigerians are going full tilt because they desperately need the money. And even at a very low per barrel price, they can't pass up the cash flow. So they're uh, selling every barrel they can sell at a loss and they're going to make it up in volume. More or less. I mean, these are countries (laughs) that can marginally money at a fairly low price per barrel. It's getting to the point now where they may have priced themselves out of the market. Venezuela, at the very minimum, needs around 40 bucks a barrel. Um, the Nigerians, if they can get 30 bucks a barrel, they can still make a little bit of money. Hard to tell with Russia. It depends on where the oil is coming from. But in general, the Russians have needed it to be 50 to 60 bucks a barrel for them to make money. But it's just like you know, many businesses that you and I have known over the years. When you're in a desperate straits, all you're interested in is cash flow. If you just keep the doors open for a few more months, you hope that things turn around. And that's kind of where the oil producers are now. They they don't want to shut down because it's too expensive to start back up again. But they're just hoping that they can keep keep the doors open until demand recovers or you know somebody else leaves the scene and opens up supply. What's with uh, uh, Brazil, uh, Chris? Um, They are in a recession. Uh, I think they're in a third month of a recession. Uh, They've they've gone through uh, the Petrobras scandals, and that's not over yet. Uh, What what could you tell us about that? Well, Brazil is the country of the future and always will be. Um, It it just cannot... (laughs) seem to get out of its own way and every time there's an opening brazil i think 
sort of becomes enamored of its own reputation and begins to act in a way that it can't sustain. And a real good example of this is, you know, Brazil became one of the leading emerging economies. Everyone was excited. Investment was stimulating. And Brazil said, well, let's do the World Cup and the Olympics and everything else out of the sun. And it's like, you can't afford to do either one of those things, not to mention both. And the World Cup nearly broke them. The Olympics have gotten so bad that there is talk about switching to another country at the last minute because Ooh. there's absolutely no confidence that that they're going to be able to pull it off. Um, it's almost to the point of asking Britain, you still have the stuff from the last games, don't you? <laughs> you still have the soccer balls hanging around? <laughs> it's kind of like, could you, like, dust off that sign and paint over the stuff that said 2014? And <laughs> so, I mean, it's just, it, it gets a little crazy. The problem China. with Brazil is that it's a commodity-driven country, and it lives and dies by the price of commodities. And when the gods are smiling, you get good prices for Brazilian ethanol and for Brazilian agriculture, and you get good prices for Brazilian oil development. You know, the curse in Brazil is that they always seem to develop something at the wrong time. So they're finally ready to start producing oil, and it's 40 bucks a barrel. <laughs> it's kind of like, like, yay, we're here. Um, they've had drought, which has affected coffee and soybeans and sugarcane. You know, right now Brazil is importing ethanol because it can't produce enough uh, to sustain an economy that was beginning to depend on ethanol. And then you've just got political problems galore. You know, Dilma Rousseff is struggling like mad to hold the coalition together with little success. I mean, she's adopting some of the platforms of her opponent in the last election, trying to be more centrist. But every time she does that, her own supporters turn on her. And she just doesn't have the personality. Lula was able to sort of ride through all of these problems because Ignacio Lula da Silva had charisma to spare, and, and he would be able to talk his way out of anything. Dilma Rousseff couldn't talk her way out of a parking ticket, you know, and it's like she's just, every mistake is magnified a thousandfold. Um, the scandal that she talked about, I mean, there's dozens going on right now in Brazil. I mean, every major company is, to one degree or another, swallowed up with this, and it just all kind of comes to roost. Inflation is high, interest rates are high, um, exports are down, imports are more expensive. It's just, it's not a great time to be in Brazil. What's uh, happening? I wish you had told us that before we opened up our sales operation down there (laughs) a year ago. See, I I believe Brazil was coming, and now it's coming and gone. It's going, yeah, exactly. It's, it's, It's one of those things where, most of those kind of investments seem to be long-term. You know that you're dealing with a country that goes through cycles, and you kind of ride it out and, and hope that when they start to recover, then there's an opportunity to make money again. The good news for Brazil is that it has all of these resources, which at various points are in demand. And if you get a good agricultural year, 
a lot of sins are are forgiven. And Brazil's challenge is trying to become more of a manufacturing state, and that's just a slow process because they they were counting on lots more investment than they got. Uh, a lot of an anticipation that China was going to put a great deal of money into Brazil. Well, then all of a sudden the Chinese economy is suffering, and the Chinese are like, oh, sorry, we lied. <laughs> so. What about uh, go ahead, Tim. What about uh, Japan, uh, uh, Chris? How are they doing? I mean, they've got the you know trying to recover from the, the tsunami and the Fukushima reactor issues. Uh, where is their economy sitting these days? And Japan is still stalled. It's in the same mess that it's been for ten years, and there's really no easy out uh, for Japan. Japan has been in the longest period of deflation of any major economy, and part of this is economic and part of it's cultural. The U.S. periodically worries about deflation, too. We have a little bit more concern about it now than we've had in a while. But at the end of the day, the U.S. consumer consumes our way out of a deflation. You know, sooner or later, we begin to buy, and we don't sit around waiting forever for prices to get even lower. Japan will wait forever. The consumers there are, are not driven the way they are here. Lots of reasons for that. Cultural, you know, there's spatial considerations. There's a reason you don't see a Sam's Club in Japan. You know, I mean, if people bought that many paper towels in Japan, they'd be living on them. Um, So (laughs) it it just isn't a culture that's set up for that kind of consumption. There was a massive attempt on the part of the government to spend money. Uh, It was dubbed Abenomics um, after Shinzo Abe. And it kind of worked, but and here's an example of of governments not really paying attention to their own actions. Right in the middle of this stimulus, Japan decided that it wasn't getting enough money for the government, so it passed a massive increase on sales taxes. And then they were shocked, shocked, I tell you, when the Japanese consumer didn't spend. And it's like, you just taxed them at a rate twice what it was the day before. What do you think they're going to do? They don't have any more money. You taxed it away from them. So it's kind of like, here's $10. You need to give me $9.75 back. So why aren't you spending $10? Because they only have a quarter. Um, <laughs> it just, it, it, there's sometimes this inability to grasp basic logic is is beyond me. Um, Japan really, really needs export markets. I mean, it cannot pull itself out with its own economy. So it needs the U.S., it needs Europe, it needs China, it needs countries that buy their stuff. And unfortunately for China or Japan, fortunately for us, the big Japanese companies have long ago kind of jettisoned Japan. Toyota of America is is twice the size of Toyota of Japan, and it has nothing to do with its Japanese counterpart. It's an American company and pays American taxes and sends nothing back to Japan at all. Um, it basically the Japanese said, oh, there's nobody to sell cars to here. Let's move to the United States completely. And you're seeing a lot of countries do that. Germany is now the second largest investor in the United States uh, in terms of, of actual 
factory purchase type investing, not you know, not investing in the stock market and bonds, but literally coming in and buying a piece of the U.S. economy because the Germans are like, we're tired of waiting for Europe to recover. Um, we're going to move to the U.S. Let me ask you a question. Uh, this is somewhat self-serving, but it, uh, it's appropriate. Uh, being that uh, we made a wise decision about Brazil, uh, we're now looking at uh, Mexico uh, in view of the fact that they're uh, the, now the nearshoring uh, country and that aerospace from California is uh, moving to Mexico and other manufacturing companies are looking to move to Mexico. Uh, we're hearing a lot of good things down there. Uh, I'd like to hear your take on that. Yeah, Mexican manufacturing is really taking off. And this is not a country without its own problems. And politics plays a huge role in what happens with with Mexico from year to year. But you've had several factors that have set up over the last several years to make Mexico a lot more appealing. Number one is transportation. Uh, the, The very problem we started this show with, if you're worried about the docks and you're worried about the unions and you're worried about all the other things that affect moving goods from Asia to the U.S., the thought of putting something that you've produced on a train in some place like Querétaro or San Luis Potosí and watching it rocket across the border into Texas is suddenly very appealing. And this is something that has really stimulated Mexican manufacturing. You can see that all of these towns that are sort of stretched along the tracks of, of Kansas City, Southern De Mexico is, is, are growing. I mean, that's where the activity is. The second thing is that Mexico has made kind of a commitment to manufacturing. They have invested a lot of money in training of people to work in these uh, operations, lots of new trade schools. They have put a lot of energy into trying to stimulate manufacturing by changing zoning laws and and just being very hospitable. Uh, The business parks in these towns are impressive and they're new and they're attracting business away from China and other parts of Asia. The challenge with Mexico is always political. Right now it's a very progressive president, Enrique Peña Nieto, who pledged to do a lot of this stuff. He's trying to reform the national oil company. But he has lots of opposition, and lately scandals have been reaching into his office. The drug issues continue to be a major inhibitor as far as Mexican development is concerned. But on balance, what you've got, I think, in Mexico is the beginnings of that reliable NAFTA partner that we thought we were going to get 20 years ago. It's close. It's culturally connected to the U.S. You now have enough development there that Mexico is paying attention to, you know, niceties like helping people get paid. It used to be a problem if somebody was not going to pay you in Mexico. You had to go through all kinds of bizarre permutations. The Mexicans used to require a thing called the pagare, which was a guarantee of a relative of the person who owed you money. So... Somebody was going to pay you, but you had to get their dad to sign. (laughs) And it's like, really? Um, So Mexico is finally kind of joining the 
20th century when it comes to credit and, and taking care of those kinds of, of business deals. The courts are still a mess. It's still, you know, a place where local contacts and local friends mean a lot more than they do in the U.S., but it's increasingly a bicultural thing. Many of the companies that we do business with, we the U.S., the Mexican counterparts live in the U.S. I mean, so it's not like you have to traipse down to Mexico City. It's like, yeah, well, they've got an office in Houston, (laughs) so go talk to them there. When we come back... I'm sorry. Go ahead, Tim. We're going to take a quick commercial break, and we'll be back in just a few moments with Dr. Chris Keel, who is an economist analyst and a humorist. I'm thrilled at the way that Chris handles discussions of the economy, which can normally be pretty dull, grab-and-dry material, which he peps it up quite a bit. So let's take a quick commercial break, and then we'll be back with Manufacturing Talk Radio. Manufacturing Talk Radio will be right back. American Crane and Equipment Corporation in Douglasville, Pennsylvania, is a leader in specialized cranes, hoists, and material handling equipment for industries including aerospace, nuclear, oil and gas, transit, construction, and waste handling. Call 877-877-6778 or visit AmericanCrane.com. That's AmericanCrane.com or 877-877-6778. All Metals and Forge Group is an ISO 9001 AS and EN 9100 manufacturer of open die forgings and seamless rolled rings in alloy, carbon, stainless and tool steels, aluminum, copper, titanium, and nickel alloys. Visit us at steelforge.com or call 800-600-9290. Welcome back to Manufacturing Talk Radio. And we're back with uh, Manufacturing Talk Radio with Lou Wise. I'm Tim Grady, and here we're here with Dr. Chris Keel. Uh, Chris, one of the countries as we take our uh, trip around the globe that we haven't talked about is our friends to the north in Canada. Uh, they seem to have been slow in the fourth quarter of uh, 2014. How are they looking for 2015? In some respects, Canada is a lot like Brazil in the sense that it's very commodity dependent. I mean, it's obviously a lot more organized and and doesn't have sort of the governmental political wrangles that Brazil has. But this is a country that's depended for years on everything from oil to lumber to agricultural goods. I mean, it has its share of manufacturing, most of which is connected to the U.S. I mean, it's Germany is the number two investor in the U.S., Canada is number one, and that connection will always be there. It's not to the point that as the U.S. goes, goes Canada, but it's it's real close. I mean, when you realize that 80% of the Canadian population lives within 200 miles of the United States, the influence of one country on the other is, is substantial. The good news for Canada is that they are – pretty fiscally conservative. Uh, The Harper government has been very aggressive about trying to reduce debt and and keep the Canadian budget in some form of of balance. So they have the capacity to ride out uh, problems from from year to year. 
the banking system has has managed to avoid most of the pitfalls that really racked the U.S. and Europe. On the other hand, uh, Canada is is highly dependent on exports, not only of commodities, but of the things that they do manufacture. And they are connected as much to Europe as they are to the U.S. In order for the Canadians to see growth the way they had it two or three years ago, they need to see Europe recover, they need to see us continue to recover, and they need to see the prices of those commodities, most notably oil and gas, uh, come back up. So... They're going to hold their own this year, but I think this will be a tough year for them to do much in the way of growth. Now, we've talked about uh, oil as an issue and terrorism as a possible issue to hurt the U.S. economy. Are there any other uh, skeletons in the closet that could come out to haunt the 2015 GDP? Well, I think probably, and it's not nearly as sinister as terrorism or as dramatic as oil, but we're going to start seeing the impact of having the strongest economy in the world right now. It may not feel like it. You know, we're not exactly dancing in the streets, but our growth compared to everybody else's growth is pretty impressive. That has been causing the dollar to gain in value, and the European struggles have contributed to the euro losing value, and you combine those two, And suddenly the U.S. advantage when it comes to exporting begins to deteriorate. About a week ago, there was the shock that hit Europe, not completely unexpected, but the timing was when the Swiss franc decoupled from the euro. The Swiss were getting increasingly worried about what was happening with the euro as a whole, and they knew that at some point it was going to really slam their exports and tourism. So rather than wait for this to happen, they sort of bit the bullet and decoupled now. Briefly after they did this, the franc went up by 50% over the euro. The dollar sort of followed, and at one point the U.S. dollar was trading in a more a stronger position than it had in 11 years. It has settled down a bit, uh, but still uh, the dollar is trading much more strongly against the euro. It's trading against the yen. It's trading against the renminbi. You name it, the dollar is stronger than these other currencies. That hurts exports, and at some point we're going to start feeling it. Uh, It's not out of control yet, but you throw in the interest rate changes that are scheduled for the end of the year, and it could get out of control in a hurry. One of the concerns is that if the dollar is already strong, what happens when we start raising rates and we're the only major country in the world doing so? Investors come flooding into the U.S. because the dollar is worth even more. And pretty soon it's like, well, we have all these manufacturers, all of whom have developed these dandy foreign markets for the last 20 years, and suddenly they're all slammed shut because they can't afford to buy our stuff. That's something over which we have some control, not a lot. Uh, We can control what we do with interest rates. We can try to have an impact on the dollar, but that's the sort of economic earthquake, there we go, or volcano uh, that that could have an impact (laughs) even by the middle to the end of the year. Um, There are ways to protect to a certain extent, but they're not easy, and and they're certainly not uh, something that can be done right away. That probably worries me more than 
sort of the political things, which we're either going to get a tremendous reaction to the terrorist threat or it's going to be the same dull roar that we've been contending with for 15 years. So, Chris, let me ask you a question. Being that we uh, talk greatly to the manufacturing sector uh, in the U.S., is there any suggestions or any thoughts on how the U.S. manufacturer, taking into account all the things we've just talked about, is there anything that the U.S. manufacturer can do to protect himself or that he should be looking to do to uh, change or alter product lines or his his market sectors or um, anything that's going to protect his business? You know, it all comes down to the same kind of advice that businesses are given all the time. It's efficiency. It's cost control, it's understanding the market, it's none of these things are, are rocket science in terms of, of concept, they're all hard to execute. The advantage that American manufacturers have had is that they have been able to produce a quality product at a relatively low price. Where they compete in the world, there are plenty of companies that can produce a quality product at a higher price. We usually have an advantage over some of the German manufacturing because of that. There are plenty of companies that can produce at a lower price, but it's an inferior product. That's what we compete against when we're dealing with the Asians, in particular China. We've thus far been able to maintain that good quality at a low price, but we do that because we're efficient. We use machines and capital investment when we can. We try to keep our people trained. We try to keep our costs under control. We have narrow margins. I mean, nobody goes into manufacturing to become wealthy. Um, I think the old joke is, how do you make a small fortune in manufacturing? Well, you start with a large fortune uh, and work your way down. Um, it's, and I think we can continue to do that, and then we have to pay very close attention to competitive pressures, trying to be where others are not, um, trying to be aware of where some of the new growth areas are, maybe not getting the attention in the rest of the world yet, uh, lots of opportunity, for example, in Africa, but it's also a very challenging place to do business. And some countries easier to deal with than others. Uh, others are just not yet ready for that kind of investment. Probably the three biggest, I guess, goals for business, particularly manufacturers, is to maintain a commitment to capital investment, which means having the wherewithal to do it and a relationship with a bank if you need one. Most do. The second thing is to pay close attention to the labor force, make sure that the people that one needs are there and are going to stay with you. And the third thing is being very aware of where the new market opportunities are so that you're anticipating uh, where the demand is going to be as opposed to catch up. Now, you know, that it's kind of like telling a football coach, saying, look, in order to win the Super Bowl, you've got to pass really well defend really well and, and have good special teams. They're like, duh, um, yes, I know that. Um, how does one guarantee these things? That's the big question. I mean, everybody wants to to play the same way. It's who's going to be able to actually do it. 
Uh, Chris, you mentioned a, a moment ago about uh, the banking industry um, and that everyone has one. I'm not sure everybody wants one, but everyone has exactly. one. Exactly. Uh, where where is the banking industry now in regards to uh, manufacturing sector in terms of uh, being more liberal uh, in their lending uh, process? There's signs of it becoming a little more open, uh, but it's not yet where most manufacturers would like it to be. The banking industry as a whole has been contending with the Bank Reform Act, the Dodd-Frank monstrosity that was passed a few years ago. This became the world's biggest catch-all for anything banking-related. And by the time it was done, it was 3,000 pages long. It has given rise to 500 banking regulations, at least, from 29 different banking institutions of one regulatory kind or another. To put this in context, the bill, the law that put the entire Federal Reserve System in place was 35 pages long. <laughs> this thing was 3,000 pages. And it has taken particularly the small and mid-sized banks a while to get get a hold of this. I mean, the joke when I talk to bankers is that the good news is we're hiring. The bad news is we're hiring compliance officers, not people to build our business. So the banks that many manufacturers rely on are those small community regional banks, and they have struggled to figure out how to interpret all this new stuff coming from this act. They are now beginning to get a bit uh, ahead of this and getting a little bit more comfortable with the new regulations. The flood of new things has slowed. The anticipation, therefore, is that this is going to be a better year for uh, accessing credit. I work a lot with credit managers, and they have started to see uh, a little more aggression when it comes to the banking industry. Uh, the banks, at the end of the day, they have to loan. I mean, that's how they make money. And what they've been trying to do is figure out how to do this without triggering a regulatory response, and they're slowly but surely getting there. My advice to manufacturers this year is that even if you were turned down last year, this would be a good time to go back to those same banks and say, hi, are you smiling a little more now? <laughs> so they're they're likely to be in a better mood. You think they'll be in a better mood with the uh, Obama uh, bank tax proposal that he's about to launch uh, tonight in the State of the Union address? Yeah, they're not going to be very happy with it, but they're also quite aware of the fact that this is not something that the president can do unilaterally. And mostly what we're going to be watching on the union, State of the Union speech tonight is somebody who is basically spitting into the wind. Uh, it's kind of like you no longer have control over Congress uh, of any kind whatsoever. And, and what this basically is going to amount to is kind of a declaration of war, uh, saying these are all the things that I want to do. You're not going to pass them. I know that. And I simply intend to beat you over the head with it in 2016. Um, every single thing it's said tonight is going to be a political platform for two years from now. You know, it's like there's no way that there's going to be an additional tax on banks. There's no way there's going to be an additional tax on the wealthy. That come 2016, the Democrats can come back and say, see, see, you know, those creep Republicans didn't want to tax banks. You know, we were in the business of trying to make sure that there were no banks. 
and just, <laughs> you know, it, it's one of those things where you know, as a as a professionally cynical economist, you know, I fully intend to watch reruns of Gilligan's Island tonight. So. <laughs> Uh, now, speaking of regulation, that's the one thing we haven't touched on in for you know that could give manufacturers a real hit. Uh, there's so much regulation coming out to regulate manufacturers, just really choking the industry. Is that going to get ramped back now, or is that gonna, just going to continue unabated? I think it'll continue because you know what you're seeing uh-huh. now is is an administration that really doesn't have much in the way of legislative weapons to turn to. So it's going to be more executive action, more bureaucratic action. Right before the end of the year, on one day uh, in the interim between Christmas and New Year's, 6,000 new regulations were promulgated in one day. And, I mean, across every conceivable thing you can think of. I mean, there's almost no way to keep up with them. And and it's it's kind of become gotcha regulation because companies can't keep up with them, so they just function like they always do, and then they wait for the hammer to show up if somebody comes to their door one day and says, well, did you know that you're in violation of Regulation 17-14-3, which prohibits redheaded people from working between the ages? I mean, it's just, where the hell did that come from? Well, we passed it last year, and we printed it in the Poughkeepsie Iron Workers Journal. Um, you know, so... It's it's going to be a mess, and it, the the problem is is twofold. Because on the one hand, we can't keep up with the regulations, but neither can the regulators, and they are not staffed to even deal with the new regulations that have been handed them. You know, I know people on the other side of the fence, and they're like, "There's no way in the world we can do this. We don't have people who can even carry out this work." You know, this requires inspections. This requires follow-up. And and several people I know said, you know, honestly, I mean, I had one friend who says, you know, please don't quote me, but he said, I would recommend that anybody that's regulated by my agency just ignore us until we yeah. show up at your door because we have no idea how what, how we're going to enforce these things, and we probably won't. I mean, it's it's almost like... Somebody else was equating it to laws against texting on your phone. Okay, yeah, you have the law. How's the cop going to figure that out? I mean, unless you yeah. have to pull up next to one and text him, you know, it's like <laughs> you know, they can't see in the car. So it's it's, yay! I'm so glad that that's illegal. How is it going to be enforced? So well, I Chris, think that's going to be our problem. Well, Chris, let me ask you. Um, was these 50,000 new regulations a point just to show the public that the government is really working? I mean, what's the purpose of all of these regulations? One, if it For can't the be enforced. Part, I mean, a lot of times these are regulations that are prompted by some interest group, some organization, even competitors. I mean, one of the oldest tricks in the book, is if you're trying to get an advantage over a competitor, you go to a regulatory agency and force through a regulation that discriminates against your competitor and and not against you. So this kind of pressure is constant. It's usually interest group pressure where somebody who is, you know, using the proverbial squeaky wheel will say, you know, this is a horrible thing and, and you know, you need to do something about it. 
we also have the mentality right now and have had it for a number of years where every single thing that happens seems to promulgate the regulation. I mean, there are regulations now on how hot coffee is to be delivered to somebody in a drive-up window, which came out of the McDonald's incident. But there is actually a book of regulations about an inch thick on the proper way to hand a cup of hot coffee to a patron at a drive-up window. Well, we and certainly like, encourage you. We certainly encourage you to listen to our last week's show because the new McDonald's one was a gentleman who bought a uh, shake from McDonald's and and some fries. He put the fries on the seat next to him and the shake between his legs, and then in driving and reaching over to get the fries, he popped the lid off the shake, which exploded into his lap, which gave him such a shock he rear-ended the car in front of him. And the driver of that car sued McDonald's because the shake was too cold. Mm-hmm. I'm all for a set of regulations that says if you're incapable of managing food in your car, your driver's license is to be revoked personally. <laughs> and if you are ever seen in anything other than a bus, you will be immediately arrested and sentenced to 25 years hard labor. It's like you're just too damn stupid to be out with the rest of us. <laughs> uh, well, other than that, now we've talked about uh, hurricanes, tornadoes, earthquakes, and floods. Uh, right, right. Chris, how does, how does 2015 in the first quarter look, uh, giving all these dark clouds who are creeping up behind us that we shouldn't turn around? Exactly, exactly. I think that we're probably going to see growth around 3% because many of the things that are bothering us are not yet here. They have not had the impact on the economy and they might not until even toward the end of the year, third or fourth quarter. So I think we can pretty, be pretty comfortable with 3 3.5% growth in the first quarter. It wouldn't surprise me if we're pretty close to that in the second quarter. I don't think we're going to hit those 4% levels that we hit last year. But is and partly that is because there just isn't the stimulus for people to do stuff like there is in the Christmas season. The really important point in the year, I think, is going to be right when summer starts because that is traditionally a transition time. You've got a lot of people entering the workforce as they graduate from college. You've got the beginning of the summer driving season, which may affect oil prices and gasoline prices. You're going to see a certain amount of, of activity overseas because that, again, becomes a point where, you know, if there's going to be a resurgence in Europe, it's likely to take place then. So I think we're probably in pretty good shape for the first six months. The last six months, it's going to be a bit of a, a horse race as to whether or not the retail and the consumer sector overcome some of the, the more endemic problems. And it will also depend on how we react to these things. I mean, if we take steps to keep the dollar from getting too strong, that's going to help. If we have some appropriate responses to the lowering of oil prices and, and really, I mean, we're going to start seeing the impact of oil prices in things like transportation and air travel now that the holiday season is over and that kind of stuff. One of the things that people forget is that the transportation companies, airlines, they buy their fuel in advance, and it's only now that they're starting to get the savings on, on their fuel because they have to let the old contracts expire 
now they're signing new ones, which are at a new and lower price. Okay, so that looks uh, that looks good for us. I see that Delta Airlines is saving something like two billion dollars because of the low lower fuel costs. Yep. So that's certainly and that's a something very that's that's something that's really fairly recent. They only started doing that once the old contracts expired. And bear in mind that Delta has a little bit of an advantage because they sort of shocked the world last year by buying their own oil refinery. So they actually own an oil refinery that produces jet fuel. And that's been one of the ways that they've been able to save money faster than some of the other airlines. The next trick for the airlines is going to be determining what demand is and and whether or not they really need to engage in in fair wars. Traditionally, Southwest is the one that starts those, uh, and if Southwest starts dropping their fares, which some of them already have, uh, that will trigger some of the other airlines to respond. So we should uh, uh, hope that there might be a fair war, because that would be great, because the tickets that I'm paying for are, uh, you're paying top dollar. They're giving you very little wiggle room. No, exactly. I mean, nothing is going to change as far as the experience is concerned. If anything, it's likely to get worse. But I think we will start to see competitions. Now, as has always been the case, and this is something that drives people crazy, the fair wars are not going to be to Orlando and Las Vegas and places that people want to go. There may be some really good buys if you want to go to Sioux Falls or, or you know, um, Chattanooga or something. Um, how, about, but, how about Detroit? Yeah, Detroit, you know, mostly right now they're thinking of trying to pay people to go to Detroit. Um, <laughs> so, so, but that's an example, by the way, of a really, really nice airport that is underused. And at some point you're going to see some of the, competitors try to expand a little bit more into that into that region. I mean, it was built up for the days when Northwest was a top dog, and I'm always reminded when I fly in Southwest that they point out that if you have compliments, please contact the Southwest office. If you have complaints, contact their Northwest office, um, and they can't use that joke anymore. So. <laughs> um, one other subject, Chris, that I'm curious about, in the economy, and I know the price of oil is down, and that's kind of depressing uh, fracting, and I know that the Saudi people don't, the OPEC uh, guys don't want us fracting, they don't want us to be the biggest oil producer, Is and, and there's all kinds of pressure against fracking and the myth that your faucet water is going to start on fire. What's going to happen with fracting in the U.S.? I think it's going to slow a little uh, for a while, but I think it's a technology that's here to stay. It's in its infancy, and there's going to be a lot of of experimentation trying to understand what works, what doesn't work, because, again, it's it's much more complex than people give it credit for. If it's very shallow fracking, this is where you get into trouble with the groundwater, and it ends up having an impact on ground stability. If it's a deeper fracking, which is mostly what you get in the Dakotas, those are problems that are really non-existent. Um, one of the reasons that there's less interest in the Marcellus area in Pennsylvania is that it is mostly shallow fracking, and people don't really want to run those risks. The further you go, Texas is all deep. Uh, the North Dakota is mostly deep. The U.S. is not going to give up the fracking 
technology or that oil field any more than Canada is going to give up tar sands. The Saudis are always trying to figure out how to compete with against their competitors because they can make and they make money off oil at the cheapest prices in the world. I mean, they can make profits at ten bucks a barrel because oil is so easy to get uh, in Saudi Arabia. You jab a stick in the ground and oil comes out. So there's always going to be that competitive pressure. I think the U.S. will probably see two things happen when it comes to fracking. One, it will slow down a bit, and then two, right on top of that, you'll get a lot of consolidation. A lot of the bigger companies will be swallowing up the smaller companies because they have more resilience, and they'll understand that fracking oil is like everybody else's oil. It's got booms and it's got busts, and the companies that survive are the ones that have the money to ride out the bust and then are in place to start taking advantage when the boom comes. It's for people in the listening audience that are just fascinated with the world of oil, if you ever really want to get a good primer on kind of the history of oil and how it's gone through so many of these ups and downs, there's a book called The Prize by Daniel Jurgen, and they made a miniseries out of it for PBS years ago. But it's a fascinating book. It turned Jurgen into, like, the world's leading expert on oil. He runs Cambridge Energy Associates now. But fascinating in terms of showing that everything we deal with today, we were dealing with in the 1800s as well. Hmm. Well, Chris, we certainly thank you for being on the show. We were uh, we look forward to having you back again in the near future. You're always such a great source of uh, enjoyable information. Um, so we'd love having you as a guest. I, my pleasure, and, you know, any opportunity I have to shoot my mouth off, I will take. <laughs> uh, Chris, I, too, want to thank you. And uh, if you would, if you'd like to hear from some of our listeners, if you'd like to give us your uh, email address. Yes, uh, I'd be glad to. The best way to get website. in touch with me would be to just send me an email, and it's pretty simple. It is my first name dot last name. So it's Chris dot Keel, and that's K U E H L at Armada CI dot com, and that's A R M A D A C I dot com. So it's Chris dot Keel at Armada CI dot com. Okay, terrific. And again, thank you. And for our guests who have not heard the entire show, you can, in, in about an hour and a half from now, you can go to manufacturingtalkradio.com and uh, listen to the entire show on our podcast. If you want to send us uh, any information, send it to info at metal, uh, mfgtalkradio.com. Uh, thank you again, Chris. And Tim, back to you. Well, that kind of wraps us up. Enjoyed having you, Chris. Look forward to talking to you in the future. Uh, uh, Lou, we'll talk with you again next week uh, as we uh, uh, have our show uh, next week on Manufacturing Talk Radio. And that really wraps us up for today on Manufacturing Talk Radio. See you next week. Thanks for joining us on Manufacturing Talk Radio. You can hear our next broadcast each Tuesday at 1 p.m. Eastern Standard Time at mfgtalkradio.com.
This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.